This is the full story. I'm Tom Kuser. He was an early pioneer in preserving the environments in this country. He sponsored the 1918 Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which still protects birds today. He also took on government corruption, and he dealt with mental health challenges. And he served as governor and a U.S. senator for the state of Connecticut. That is quite a resume, quite a life story, and it belongs to George Payne McLean. A new biography titled A Connecticut Yankee Goes to Washington, George Payne McLean, Birdman of the Senate, chronicles the details of his life and work. The author of the book is Will McLean Greeley, and Mr. Greeley joins us via Zoom. Uh, welcome to the full story. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here today. You're the great-great-grandnephew of the senator, thus uh, your middle name. But your connection, I understand from reading your, your book, your connection to him wasn't something your family or perhaps at least your father touted very much, correct? That's correct. Why is my that? My middle name is McLean, and many people in my family over the generations have this same middle name. But uh, in asking my parents, you know, why did they give me this middle name? I think it had become something of a habit by the time my generation came around. And so I've always wanted to learn more about this man. He was governor of Connecticut, as you said, senator for 18 years. And I knew he must have led a fascinating life, but I didn't have the details. And now I do. And he, he really did live a fascinating and important life. Why do you think that uh, in terms of sort of families passing along his story, why do you think that wasn't necessarily happening uh, in, in your family about uh, the senator? Well, my father was a Depression era baby, and he loved Franklin Delano Roosevelt, as he should. But what came along with that was a certain disregard, shall I say, for the Republican Party, which uh, George P. McLean was. And I think his stance, McLean's stance on a couple of key issues, like his opposition to the League of Nations and his stance on women's suffrage, kind of relegated George P. McLean to someone that he wasn't particularly proud of. But I think what I've uncovered is that all of us have strengths and weaknesses. All of us have foibles and perhaps stances on issues over time that we're not uh, entirely happy with. But on balance, McLean was in many ways a reformer of that era. And while there were several issues that my, my dad really took issue to, I think he also was a leading reformer of that time. And of course, in the area of bird protection, he was very important. And we should mention that we're, the era we're talking about is late 19th, early 20th century, just so uh, mm -hmm. folks understand uh, the time period that, that we're talking about. So there was this lack of familial information uh, coming to you. What sparked your interest, your drive to find out more about George P. McLean? Well, in 2018, there was considerable news coverage about the 1918 Migratory Bird Treaty Act. It was on the 100th anniversary. Some of these articles um, called it America's first and most important conservation wildlife legislation. Others um, called out McLean's leadership role in getting it passed. This legislation, uh, one conservationist said it has saved millions, if not billions of birds from needless killing and quite possibly halted the extinction of, of some very beautiful birds. And so this news coverage, I think, was what triggered it. And I wanted to 
really understand his life in more detail, put the MBTA into a broader context and see how, how did it fit into his whole life story? What else didn't I know about him? And, and the documents about uh, Senator McLean's political career, about his life, were really not sort of one neat pile in one place, I understand. So researching his work and life, that was a bit of a challenge. Uh, in your book, mm-hmm. you describe it as a scavenger hunt of sorts. How did you, how did you research this biography? Where did, where did you start? Well, uh, I, I began with many writings in my own family um, by his nephews, his great nephews and nieces, and read as much as I could there. But then that was just the beginning. I wanted to put that in context. And so in total, there were over 300 sources that went into this book, many histories of that time, the progressive era, the roaring 20s, uh, the Gilded Age before that, and then many journal articles about ornithology that mentioned him, history uh, journals as well. But newspaper coverage was really uh, one of the key pieces that helped me reconstruct his life from, he was born in 1857, he died in 1932. This was the golden age of newspapers. Thanks to it now being all online, I was able to really reconstruct his his whole life because he was um, a public figure and he gave many speeches and interviews. And so I was able to really resurrect a timeline of his whole life and put these family writings in context. And then, of course, the congressional record, all of his speeches while he was in the Senate have been preserved as well. So the Hartford Currents, the New Haven, I guess it would have been the Journal Courier uh, back in the day, they served as as, uh, major sources for some of your information? Yes, I'd say there were probably a dozen different Connecticut-based newspapers that were utilized. But then another 40 or 50 national newspapers in Washington, D.C., New York, uh, New York Times, also even international. In Canada, uh, there was coverage about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So it was taking that whole breadth of coverage, putting the writings I had that were more personal into that context, One of the benefits of working with this publisher, uh, Rochester Institute of Technology Press, is that my book was peer-reviewed by two leading historians, and they provided a number of uh, different sources that I could use to further contextualize the narrative that I had. So that was very helpful as well. Must have taken you quite a bit of time again, given given all those sources that, that you've mentioned, to to pull this together and, and then to write it and then to have it published in, some people might think five years is quite a bit of time, but uh, or just over four years, I guess, but that must have been a lot of work. It was. It was a truly a labor of love. I often joke that this book is my third child. You know, we have two sons. <laughs> um, they took nine months to get born. This took four years. <laughs> When you write a book, it is a very solitary activity, but when you publish one, it's a truly a team activity. And so it probably took me about a year and a half to do the research, another year to do the writing, and rewriting and re-editing is so crucial in writing a book. But when I delivered the manuscript to my publisher, it was then another 18 months of uh, working with them back and forth through these two uh, peer reviews, and their editing was also invaluable. As a first-time author, I was very receptive to all of their input because writing and publishing a book 
is a big undertaking and I benefited so much from the expertise of Rochester Institute of Technology Press. So let's talk a bit about George P. McLean, born, as you, as you said, in 1857, and it was on a farm in Simsbury, Connecticut, which today is fairly rural, or at least suburban, and, and back then truly rural. He grew up on, on a farm, a, a thriving farm, raising cattle, sheep, chickens, other livestock. They grew many types of crops, apples, tobacco, and, and such, uh, made their own clothes, from what I read in your book. Sounds like they lived rather simply and efficiently. Interesting start for someone who wound up to be a governor and a U.S. senator. This early efficiency uh, led to, uh, as you mentioned, McLean getting bullied to some extent at school. Could you tell us more about just how he grew up on this farm? Yes, it was a subsistence farm in rural Connecticut, about 100 acres. He was a farmhand, you know, he milked cows before going to school every day. And um, his clothing was made from the wool shorn from sheep and the flax grown from uh, the crops. So when he got to Hartford Public High School, um, that was a real mix of some of the rural people and then the wealthy townies, so to speak, from Hartford. And he was bullied for the clothes that he wore. But in time, he won the respect of many of these antagonists who regarded him as the brainiest member of their class. They elected him class orator and school editor in recognition for his exceptional speaking and writing abilities. When he graduated from high school, he said he had two dreams. He wanted to become publisher of the largest newspaper in Connecticut, and second, get elected president of the United States. He was a very ambitious individual and his first job was as a reporter, and that provided in a, a very critical link in his development. He covered many politicians in Hartford, and they quickly saw in him a very ambitious, personable, articulate young man, and they saw real potential for him in politics. So they mentored him, and that began his journey in his 20s and 30s to getting recognition throughout the state of Connecticut as a up-and-coming politician. You mentioned in your book that McLean's father was the last of five children, and you say that meant uh, he was destined to inherit the farm and care for his aging parents, George McLean uh, growing up on this farm. But with this, as you point out just now, this intense youthful ambition for perhaps greater things, he, he doesn't sound like someone who is content to, so to speak, stay on the farm. No, he hated farming. He hated getting his uh, hands dirty. He couldn't wait to discover a new world in Hartford. So he never looked back after he got to Hartford. What's ironic, though, Tom, is at the end of his life, he came full circle and returned to the farm and became, a in his retirement, a dairy farmer, a tobacco farmer. And I think that brought wholeness to his life in that he left this beautiful rural setting that he loved, which is where I think his love of birds came from. Mm. 
and then he spent a life in a modern world. And I think in some ways he he was uncomfortable with that, although he embraced modernity fully. I think he, at the end of his life, he found wholeness in getting back to the farm uh, that he had uh, kept all those years. This youthful ambition, was it shaped at all by some of his ancestral lines, Puritan ancestors who preceded him? Any connection there? I think you point out there there was some connection uh, with the things that shape his political career. Yes, I think so. His grandfather was a Yale graduate. He was a class of something like 1804, uh, and that was very exceptional. He became a minister in Simsbury, and looking at his writings, which are very extensive, Klein's grandfather, he was also very tuned into politics, and he had a summary statement. I, I mentioned this in the book about every president from George Washington to, I believe, Millard Fillmore. He gave his one line on each one of these individuals. But he came from very strong you know, Calvinistic Puritan stock. That, I think, entailed, yes, a very strong religious faith. But also there was a certain ambition um, that I think came with that, a certain interest to show excellence in everything you did, uh, respect for learning, and McLean embraced that. And I think that was part of what fueled him was some of these Puritan traits of hard work, ambition, integrity, and bringing those values into the political world. Also, uh, he spent time as a lawyer in addition to being a journalist before entering the, the political arena. Yes. Um, the mentors that he, got, he um, cultivated as a journalist, they encouraged him to study the law. So he embraced that. He became a lawyer. Uh, he didn't go to law school, but most people of that time frame just apprenticed, and he did that route. And that uh, led him into politics. They also suggested that he run for the Connecticut legislature. And at age 25, he was um, elected to his first political role, and that was in the Connecticut legislature. But he had his own law firm throughout his life. He had a very ambitious practice there. He had such uh, new clients as American Telephone and Telegraph. One of the interesting cases he had as a lawyer was allowing for the construction of telephone poles because many people didn't take kindly to that. They would cut them down. And uh, <laughs> um, he uh, defended AT&T as they tried to set up the telephone services in the early days in Connecticut. So yes, he was very involved uh, as a, with his own law practice. And then, of course, that was his inroads into serving in the Connecticut legislature in his 20s. You mentioned him being elected to the Connecticut General Assembly at the age of 25. Uh, on the full story here, we've talked uh, more than once with candidates uh, who were elected, uh, or successful candidates, in their early and mid-20s to the Connecticut legislature. Was this that common back in the day to be 25 and to be elected uh, to represent your community like this? I think it was quite young. I believe the average age was around 40 years old. A later colleague, Theodore Roosevelt, Roosevelt also was in the New York legislature at this age. And McLean took on the role of a reformer very early in his time in the Connecticut legislature. And I think this is um, an insight into his approach throughout his political career. 
He took on the very corrupt practice of how pardons were granted to the imprisoned. It was very corrupt in those days. The legislature awarded pardons, and they did this in a almost circus-like environment. It was almost a, a public spectacle of people coming to plead their case, and there was often bribery and influence trading to award people pardons. And McLean took on this very corrupt practice, which resulted in the creation of the Connecticut Board of Pardons. And this was a significant achievement for a young George P. McLean in his 20s. And it ended this very corrupt practice, which I describe in my book. It's almost humorous how corrupt it was. And that put him on the political map, I think, in Connecticut, this um, creation of the Connecticut Board of Pardons. As you pointed out before, he was a Republican. Uh, why did he choose to run? So when he when he won his first political office in 1882, I think it was, it was as a Republican. Why did he choose the Republican Party, which at that time mm -hmm. was something different than the modern Republican Party, of course? Yes, that's very true. Now, of course, this is the Republican Party stemming from Abraham Lincoln. Well, Lincoln was a big hero of McLean and many others. The Democratic Party really didn't establish a national identity until, I, I believe, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. After the Civil War, it was very regionalized. And in many ways, it was the province of the old Confederacy. The, the states of the, uh, the Democratic Party was dominated in many ways by the old Confederacy. And the Republican Party was the more national party. Tom, from, I think, 1865 to 1932, there were 15 U.S. presidents, and 13 of them were from the Republican Party. There were only two Democratic presidents in this 70-year period. That would be Woodrow Wilson and Grover Cleveland. So on a national basis, the Republican Party was really the, the stronger of the two parties nationally. It was the party of reform. This is the party of Theodore Roosevelt. You know, that's why he's on Mount Rushmore is these were the trust busters, the people that really tried to bring reform to much uh, political corruption that had come out of the Civil War. If we could jump ahead to the 1900 race for governor in Connecticut, it was, as you describe in the book, a titanic intra-party battle between two bitter factions, a power struggle between two Republican Party kingmakers who viscerally disliked each other. So it sounds like uh, within the Republican Party, there w was no love lost between uh, some of its members. And also you talked about McLean's efforts in terms of reform. And in, in this case, once he became governor, he wanted to reform the system of representation in the Connecticut legislature. So if you could tie together that battle for the governorship and what McLean wanted to do with representation and how it affected some of the people who had supported him in that race for governor. Yes, I think it was a generational change in the party. In 1900, McLean was only 43 years old and the older generation of leaders from the Republican Party harkened back to that time of patronage and corruption uh, the older members of the party, and I think they wanted to preserve their power. And McLean was more of a reformer who wanted to introduce change throughout the state. He had a reform agenda that I think displeased many of the leaders of the traditional old guard leaders of the Republican Party. So that was a very bitter fight to get the nomination. And he showed in his inaugural address that he had a reform agenda. 
he wanted um, women's suffrage only at the municipal and local level, I'll note, free textbooks for public students, massive tax reform on money corporations, and that meant the insurance industry and banking. Those were aspects of the economy that had supported McLean, and they were very upset with these tax reform proposals. But his signature issue was democratizing the Connecticut legislature. And this was important because the system that was in existence was called the town system. And every town or city had the same number of representatives regardless of population. So that meant that a small town like Union, Connecticut with only 400 people had the same number of representatives that New Haven had with over 100,000. This harkened back to colonial times, but what it did in effect was it created a rural control of the legislature and the cities were vastly underrepresented. And McLean wanted to, he wanted to introduce proportional representation. So these bigger cities that were filled with immigrants and the people uh, teaming into the cities could have equal representation in the legislature. And this was the biggest point of contention as governor was that the old guard wanted to maintain the system of rural control over the legislature and disenfranchise the, the newly arrived immigrants that were streaming into Connecticut. And this created a tremendous conflict uh, between McLean and the established leaders of the party. I'm talking with Will McLean Greeley, who is the great-great-nephew of former U.S. Senator George P. McLean, whose name figured prominently in the political world of the late 19th and early 20th century, a name we, we don't know very well today, but um, uh, Mr. Greeley is, is working to change that. This struggle that he had to change the way towns and cities were represented after he became governor. That, that took quite a toll, I understand, on his mental health. In, in fact, we still see the impact of fierce politics uh, today. For example, U.S. Senator from uh, Pennsylvania, George Fetterman, had to step away to, uh, to uh, focus on his mental health for a, a short time. What uh, happened to uh, George McLean during this time, and how did he recover from the depression that resulted? Yes. Well, it was a two-year term. And about 16 months into the term, these conflicts with uh, his opponents came to a, a fever pitch. And he was giving so much effort mentally, physically, emotionally to the job that he began to experience a very serious depression that was quite public and the newspapers covered it. They called it nervous prostration. So he left the office about three months early before his term ended. His weight had fallen to about 125 pounds from normally 160. And when he left the governor's office, he was really out of the public eye for almost 10 years, recovering from this very serious depression that he experienced. 
it's very hard to understand why anybody goes into a state of depression, um, especially when you're looking at 100 years ago. But I think his ambitions were so strong to become president that he saw this all coming to an end with this unsuccessful time as governor and that his opponents uh, wanted to exile him into the political wilderness. I think he had to really reconstruct and rebuild his life during this eight year period when he left politics. It's fascinating what he did. I, I'll just note one key thing is that he got involved in mental health reform during this time. Uh, he became president of one of the first mental health organizations that is still in existence today. It's, not, it's now called Mental Health America. But this was an effort to professionalize the care of people with, with mental health concerns. And I think it's a great example of a person taking adversity and turning it into something good. So through this effort, did he also recognize not only people who had mental health issues, but people who had developmental uh, issues, developmental disabilities, as, as we refer to it to today? Yes. He had an uncle that was needed care his whole life for a mental health issue. So I think he was sensitized to that. And the treatment of of uh, people with mental health concerns was appalling uh, during this time in the early 1900s. If there was ever an economic depression, economic downturn, they would reduce staffing and put into mental hospitals. Uh, it, they were really the last area of care and concern, I'll say that. And so there were some very, very appalling exposés about the treatment of the mentally uh, ill in the United States during this time. And part of the work that he did was to improve standards of care and great and generate more funding for mental health hospitals in Connecticut. And this eventually spread nationwide, this, this uh, Mental Health America movement that he helped um, bring leadership and, and form to. I'll share that uh, I have a brother who's developmentally disabled, and I'm sure that he has, after reading your book, I'm sure he's benefited in terms of his care from the efforts of, uh, of your great-great-uncle. Well, I think we should really evaluate our government in terms of how do they treat the most vulnerable of our populations, and that would be, of course, our young, our old, and, our, and the people who have disabilities. And I think McLean the values that he had as an individual going back to you know his upbringing uh, had this in mind in in terms of what can the government do to improve the care of the vulnerable populations in our society and he put real effort to that and organizational structure around that and i believe that was one of his great accomplishments uh, that i didn't know about at all that i learned uh, through this research We'll jump ahead again to what some might think a unusual circumstance. It would seem that his his uh, time as governor and the years afterwards might have been the peak of his political career, but he eventually was elected to the U.S. Senate from Connecticut. Yes. During that time of in the political wilderness, um, McLean actually came into a significant inheritance his father's sister, his aunt Sarah, was a wealthy widow from New York City, and she left him at that time, 1906, $3 million. 
which in today's currency is around 80 million. And so what I found striking was that uh, in the circumstance that he was in, having been dealt a bitter blow in politics, he could have lived the Jay Gadsby lifestyle mm. um, from that point on, from around 1906 beyond. But instead, he rededicated himself to re-entering politics and wanted to run for the U.S. Senate. He was unsuccessful in 1905. Many of his opponents kind of banded together to prevent him, but he persevered and he was eventually elected in 1911. This was again a source of great admiration for me when I look at the options that he had available. We'll say in today's currency, $80 million. He could have traveled the world, had multiple homes, and yet he wanted to return to politics in a slightly different role as a US Senator. And I think that was in many ways better in keeping with his personality and temperament being in the Senate is very different than being a governor. You don't have those executive responsibilities that I think had really burned him out. And so the Senate, I believe, was really tailor-made for his talents, and he served there from 1911 until 1932. And during his term in the U.S. Senate, uh, you point out what uh, you call his crowning achievements. Uh, I guess he considered it his crowning achievement as, as well, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. What prompted him to, to push this legislation? His maiden speech as a senator in 1911 was on the topic of preserving and protecting birds. So it was really his top priority. And there were really four key threats to bird populations at that time when he entered the Senate. Birds have always been hunted as a food source or a cheap source of protein. But as the population grew after the Civil War, the pressures on bird hunting really rose dramatically. Added to that, though, were fads and fashions. Women's hats were adorned with many bird feathers. But it wasn't just women. McLean decried on the Senate floor a man's coat that was made from hummingbird skins. He said there were probably 1,000 hummingbirds that were killed to make this man's coat cost $10,000 in 1910. So birds were just hunted um, indiscriminately for the fashion industry. And when the population increased from around 30 million people in 1860 to 75 million by 1900, there were more mouths to feed, more heads to put hats on. And so the population of birds was seriously declining. But Tom, the most critical factor was advances in gun technology. And primarily that would be the introduction of the pump shotgun around 1890. And so hunters became killing machines and without any restraint, the hunting of birds went from hundreds of thousands of birds a year to millions to tens of millions and ever higher. And since states controlled the hunting laws, there was no easy way to stem the tide of this out of control hunting. And so McLean's vision was that we needed federal legislation. We needed to impose national standards on the states to limit hunting and stop the cycle of extinctions that were becoming very apparent by, by 1911 when he entered the Senate. There are uh, many more things to learn about uh, George P. McLean in your book. Uh, we're getting a little bit short on time. So I'd, I'd like to, to jump ahead and ask you that after researching and writing this book, what impression do you now have of your, your great-great-uncle, George P. McLean? I 
I really admired his instinct as a reformer and his dedication to public service. I can't uh, emphasize enough that when I realized the vast amount of wealth that he had, why didn't he just live that Jay Gatsby lifestyle? And I think it was just in not in keeping with the value system that he had and that his vision to preserve and protect birds, I think, brought him to the Senate. And it was a seven-year struggle that he had to oversee to get this legislation passed. And he had great vision. He overcame obstacles during the seven-year struggle. Uh, he built coalitions. Change starts small, but he was able to bring people together to get this legislation passed. And what I found very admirable was forming an alliance with a president from the opposite political party, was Woodrow Wilson, to get this legislation signed in July of 1918. So he worked effectively in a bipartisan manner. I really admired that, that he was able to not only implement this vision, but to do it in a bipartisan way and working with Woodrow Wilson. You know, this is just something I didn't know about, you know, the coalition that he was able to pull together to get this signed while the U.S. was at war. This was July of 1918. It was a flu pandemic. There was a global war. And despite that, he and Wilson came together to get this signed. We've been talking with Will McLean Greeley, the author of A Connecticut Yankee Goes to Washington, George Payne McLean, Birdman of the Senate. Uh, that is Mr. Greeley's great-great-uncle. Uh, Mr. Greeley, thanks so much for your time today and, and sharing some of your research with us. As I said, there's much more to learn about to your great-great-uncle uh, in the book. Well, Tom, thank you very much for having me today. It was a pleasure to talk with you. You just heard about Senator George Payne McLean, one of the leading men behind the Migratory Bird Treaty Act back in 1918. But the environment has changed quite a bit over the past century. So what's being done to address the challenges we face today? With me now is Mylon Bull. He's the Senior Director of Science and Conservation at the Connecticut Audubon Society. And he knows about the integral role that birds play in the ecosystem, and he works to educate the next generation of conservationists. And he joins us via Zoom. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918, that seems like a pretty progressive thing for its day. I mean, that was more than 100 years ago. Yeah, well, you know, the, the whole conservation movement started in this country, you know, just before the turn of the century. You know, think about Teddy Roosevelt, Gifford Pinchot, George Bird Grinnell, who was a Yale graduate, and the general public were all concerned about the uh, the disappearance of our wildlife. Buffalo were just about gone. Passenger pigeons, of course, were gone. And there was a huge market for bird feathers for ladies' hats. You probably remember or have seen pictures of, uh, mm, yeah. you know, early 19th century ladies' hats. Things were disappearing at a, at a very fast rate you know before the turn of the century there were really no there were no forest reserves people were cutting down everything there was no protection for wildlife and so um the migratory bird treaty act was was worked on uh, at the turn of the century but it wasn't passed until 1918. you've had uh, 
sort of a ringside. Well, you've been in the ring for the past uh, just about 50 years when it comes to watching uh, the impact that the act has had uh, over the past century, at least half of that. Uh, how would you uh, how would you assess the impact that it's had in the last, well, at least 50 years and going back those hundred years? Oh, it's been huge. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act is, of course, it's one of the oldest uh, wildlife protection laws on the books. It saved millions, if not billions, of birds over the years. And certainly that plus the Lacey Act, uh, which was in 1900, has definitely done a tremendous amount for bird conservation across the country. What are some examples of just how it's saved so many birds? The Migratory Bird Treaty Act uh, protects migratory birds. Before the uh, the Treaty Act, the, the Lacey Act attempted to protect the tr- at least the trade in game birds and other plants and animals. So uh, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act actually protected all migratory birds from sparrows to warblers to hawks and eagles, etc. Because in the early days, uh, there was no protection. And so uh, a very common a hobby for young adults, kids, was collect uh, birds' eggs. There was no protection. So this particular bill has probably protected billions, billions of birds. It may seem uh, rather obvious, but maybe we should define uh, what is exactly what is a migratory bird. Obviously, birds move from place to place. What puts a bird into the classification of migratory? Yeah, so migratory birds are generally defined as birds that pass through an area on migration. So they're they're not resident birds. They're not birds that live there all year round, but instead they are birds that pass through on migration, in our case, north to south in the the wintertime and south to north uh, in the spring and summer. So these are not resident birds, but birds that are passing through. And what are some examples of birds that pass through our region that way? Most of our songbirds, many of our songbirds are migratory. Our warblers, our tanagers, our grosbeaks, a lot of them are are migratory. Some, of course, will reside here year-round, but most of our insectivorous birds are migratory. You know, they can't stay here in the wintertime, so they go back and forth. Lots of other birds, waterfowl, raptors, warblers, a lot of sparrows, etc. Shorebirds, for instance, are all migratory. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act also includes conservation treaties with several countries, several other countries, including uh, Canada, Mexico, Japan, Russia. Why is it important to to make this an international approach to uh, to helping migratory birds? Well, because migratory birds uh, in other countries are are migrating as well. So in other words, northern European birds migrate maybe to South Africa and back and forth. And so it's important to protect migratory birds, just not on our level as a country, but on other countries as well. Those are some of the key countries that uh, have joined the effort to protect migratory birds. Absolutely. Uh, other than preserving uh, the the different species of migratory birds through the act, do the birds, these birds play a role, specific role in our ecosystem? Oh, absolutely. J- just take, for instance, in- insectivorous birds that come through and uh, they are a great boon to our agriculture, you know, eating insects that may be damaging our crops, for instance. 
I'm wondering, too, I was thinking uh, when you were talking about shorebirds, we have Long Island Sound, which is a huge part of our region. Does the presence of the sound affect migratory bird patterns uh, and, and I guess, vice versa? And is this uh, unique or at least unusual uh, as far as uh, paths that the birds take uh, around the country? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my, many of our migratory birds, especially our shorebirds, migrate from Canada in the tundra zone down the coast. And they need stopover spots where they can feed and rest to move on to the next spot where they're migrating to. Many of our shorebirds uh, will migrate all the way to South America, for instance. So Long Island Sound provides a very important uh, stopover area uh, for shorebirds, especially because the sound is it's uh, a mix of salt and fresh water. So that that mix creates a habitat for organisms that migratory birds need to feed on. A lot of the benthic organisms, a lot of our um, our annelid worms, uh, et cetera, that shorebirds need on their migration are found in our estuary areas, like the uh, mouth of the Housatonic River, mouth of the Connecticut River, et cetera. So these, the, the Long Island Sound provides a, a huge important area for, for migratory shorebirds and waterfowl as well. So these birds are making stops uh, on both the Connecticut and New York side of the Sound then? Yes, that's true. Yep. But mostly on the, I would say on the Connecticut side, because this is where our freshwater rivers dump into Long Island Sound, creating that brackish environment that is so productive for, uh, for benthic life. What would you say is the most significant danger that uh, humans pose to these birds today? Oh boy, there are lots of, uh, there are lots of dangers. There's some um, open oil pits, you know, across the country that birds get in, they get window kills, uh, they get uh, power lines. There's lots of different uh, perils that, that birds face. Yeah, lots. In terms of keeping birds safe, let's say in our own backyards, are there places people can go to, uh, websites to find out just what they can do? For instance, I, I know for a fact that uh, more than one bird is run into a, a couple of my windows at, at home, I assume seeing, you know, uh, what sure. appears to be a clear path yeah. through the other side. Are there ways for people to, yeah, to take yeah, care of this? Yeah, window kills are another important thing. Also, uh, during migration, there's a lights out program because uh, birds are attracted to light, especially on foggy nights during migration. They, they crash into office uh, windows, high, tall buildings that have their lights on. So there's a big effort now by the uh, Connecticut Audubon Society, as well as the Connecticut Ornithological Association, uh, several other organizations to uh, limit the amount of lights that are produced by buildings at night during migration periods. Are the owners of the buildings pretty cooperative when it comes to lights out? Yes, absolutely. Uh, that, that's what we're working on now on the legislative effort as well. A couple of years ago, the Biden administration overturned a new interpretation of the MTBA by the Trump administration in 2017 and uh, once again held industries accountable for incidental bird deaths. Right. Uh, why is it so important to keep companies accountable this way? Well, incidental bird deaths include things like birds getting into power lines, birds hitting windows. Those are not impacted by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which is the uh, the purposeful take of birds. And so if a company is planning to build a facility, 
on an area where endangered species, uh, either their habitats, their breeding habitats, or their wintering habitats are occurring, then there's no law preventing them from, from doing that building. Large corporations, individuals, groups could could have a definite impact on, uh, say, endangered species or migratory birds by uh, going ahead and doing this sort of what they would call an incidental take. And so the um, the former administration re relaxed that rule. I, I guess the Biden administration has, has reinstated that. Mm, yeah, yeah. I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about the educational programs that the Connecticut Audubon Society uh, works in. Uh, the society has received a $750,000 grant from the federal government to expand educational programs uh, and buy new equipment, too, I understand. And right now, the programs are part of the school system in Norwalk, Connecticut, and uh, the money will bring Audubon into more Connecticut schools, I understand. How many more schools will be part of this expansion, do you think? Well, that could be 30 to 40 more schools. It could be up to uh, 40,000 more more kids that we will be impacting. It's a huge environmental uh, education success, not just for Connecticut Audubon Society, but for the people of Connecticut as well. This will bring, hopefully, it should bring, lots more kids under the conservation umbrella. What programs are offered for students through this? Uh, through this. Oh, system? there's all. Well, we have all kinds of uh, hands-on programs. There's in-school programs on environmental conservation, on bird protection, ornithology. There's a whole wide range. If you go to our website, uh, you can see the range of education programs that we'll be offering for these thousands of school kids. And and they focus on on the younger kids, right? Kindergarten to fifth grade. Yes, that's right. They focus on on the uh, on the young primary school kids. Why is that? Because these are the kids we're trying to get under the umbrella. You know, these are the kids who, in many cases, are not haven't been exposed to uh, conservation birds and the environment. And so, it's important to get the young kids going. And this is where they get their spark and uh, enthusiasm for nature and the environment. So it's, it's critically important to get these kids going. I was going to ask you, what are the uh, long-term benefits, do you think, of getting kids so young involved in this kind of education? Well, what happens generally, we find, is when the kids uh, are exposed to this kind of uh, conservation ed education, you know, we're hoping, of course, that they become conservationists and get a, get a job in the field. Uh, such as mine, except maybe a better paying job, <laughs> but uh, I'm just joking. But um, what, even if they don't get into the field of conservation, it gets into their, into their bloodstream. So as when they become adults, whether they're doctors, lawyers, or whatever, they still have that conservation ethic that they learned, uh, hopefully from our programs when they were in grammar school. What about older students and older adults? Uh, where can they learn more about the environment? And Another question would be, can you teach an old dog new traits? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know how many thousands of people we reach, we reach every year through our programs, but we have programs for high school kids, volunteer programs for adults. We have our, um, our field trip programs. There's evening programs. As a matter of fact, you were we were talking about the Migratory Bird Treaty Act mm -hmm. that Senator uh, McLean, uh, we're doing a program on him that's coming through one of his relatives, who is uh, Will McLean Greeley. And if you go to our website, we're going to be talking about the, a Connecticut Yankee goes to Washington 
But if you go to our website, uh, ctaudubon.org slash Greeley, you can join our program on May 17th and learn how this Connecticut Yankee going to Washington helped promote one of the most important bird conservation bills ever presented to the to the United States. And earlier in the program, we uh, spoke with with him, with Will McLean, about uh, his great great uncle. Yeah, uh, right. Yes, right, yeah. great great uncle. So that'll be that, that. That's very interesting. And again, if you could just repeat the the website for Connecticut Audubon, uh, so folks can uh, uh, find out more about that event and just about your education programs, generally speaking. Yeah. So it's www.ctaudubon.org. And if you want to go to this uh, Connecticut Yankee Goes to Washington program, it's a forward slash Greeley. But all this information is on our website, ctaudubon.org. You've had experience with a number of generations. Would you say that today's young people are more tuned into environmental issues than earlier ones? Oh, yes, absolutely. Through a number of different uh, venues, the current generation is far more tuned into the environment. They're likely to vote more for environmental issues. Uh, This is for a number of reasons. And it's the fact that there are a whole range of state, local, state, and national programs that are intersecting uh, our younger people with the environment. So, you know, um, when I was a youngster back in the 1950s, the environmental movement was just beginning to boil up. It wasn't until 1972 with the... uh, Earth Day started. And ever since Earth Day, the environmental movement has been rolling along very well. So and and we need it. So and we need more people to get involved. I certainly notice a difference. Curious, did you read Silent Spring when it came out? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Rachel Carson uh, was really a, a lay person who recognized the fact that these organochlorine pesticides were uh, destroying the bird life. And she was really uh, fought hard against by the uh, chemical companies. But finally, with her book, Silent Spring, getting such wide acclamation that we finally passed the uh, uh, the laws. Of, I think 1972 was when the DDT was uh, canceled. Mylon Bull is the Senior Director of Science and Conservation at the Connecticut Audubon Society. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Full Story. We appreciate your time. All right. Thank you very much. And that's it for today's program. Produced by Fatou Sangare, Sophie Kamizi, Sayana Bosch, and senior producer Ann Lopez. I'm Tom Kuzer. Thank you for listening to The Full Story.